Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Bet online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online sports book experts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, the host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast. As always, appreciate you being with us. Last week, we celebrated our 100th episode in this uh, three-season series so far with regard to Believe in Sports Law and hope to do hundreds of more, hundreds more of, uh, these, uh, uh, of, of these episodes, bringing on great guests and and having great topics and always appreciate you listening in and, and uh, your engagement. So uh, this is episode 101, but uh, I guess technically it's, uh, it's episode 23 of season three, but uh, it's the 101st episode overall in terms of uh, the past three seasons. So uh, this episode, we have uh, two special guests with us. This is part of uh, my duties as um, an instructor at the graduate sport management program for Cal State Long Beach in sport management. And uh, we had uh, two special guests that um, that we brought in for this particular uh, class and, and we were able to um, uh, create this podcast from it. So I hope that you enjoy uh, this particular episode where um, we have Yuri Adamov, who um, is a uh, manager of sales and distribution at Warner Media. And then we have Brian Fuhrer, who is the senior vice president of product strategy and thought leadership at Nielsen Global Media. So uh, two very great uh, guests and hope that you enjoy um, this week's episode. Thank you again for listening in. I introduce our panelists for today. So we're going to be talking about entertainment, media, sports, streaming, business, and analytics. And we have two wonderful speakers with us. Uh, the first is Yuri Adamov, who is the manager for strategy of sales and distribution at Warner Media. And if you don't know or not familiar with Warner Media, this is the company that uh, was basically came together uh, once it was purchased by AT&T uh, for what is it, $85 billion as part of the HBO package and all of that. Uh, that was a, uh, a, I think, a couple couple years ago, and now Warner Media is in a deal with Discovery, which was sold to Discovery for forty five billion dollars. So it's a lot of billions running around, uh, and Yuri's all in the mix of that. And he was at AT and T prior to uh, going over to Warner Media, but he's one of the smartest guys that I know, and I've known him for a few years now, and uh, he's blushing right now probably, but. Um, but just, just a great gentleman and uh, just happy that he's with us today. 
And then we have uh, Brian Fuhrer, who is uh, the Senior Vice President of Product Strategy and Thought Leadership at Nielsen Global Media. Brian is, again, probably one of the smartest guys that I know, and, and I see a lot of his posts on LinkedIn and um, very active in the sort of analytics community. Uh, he's the guy that a lot of companies go to for advice when it comes to analytics and business and uh, business strategy. And um, I, think, I think you're in Florida, right? Right, Brian? I am. I'm just west of Tampa. Nice. All right. So you're near the uh, Super Bowl champions then. <laughs> That's right. Between the Lightning and uh, and and the, the Rays and the Bucks, we had a good year. Unfortunately, it was pretty much all virtual, so it was kind of a curse and a blessing. Right, right. Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, I don't know if we got some Tom Brady fans on this on this Zoom, but uh, you know, definitely maybe Tom Brady would go to number two this year. We'll see. So, all right. Um, well, Brian and Yuri, thanks so much for being with us. We'll get in right into the questions here. Um, so. I guess sort of as like an icebreaker, sort of this idea of why do we use analytics? Um, so we've got, you know, 60, I think 68 students in this, you know, sports business uh, class, you know, the internship class. And so when you look back on analytics, this is something that maybe was reserved to sort of the smaller corners of business back in the, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. And then sort of in the sports side, Bill James came along and it was like, no, we should use analytics all the time. It was popularized in sports when it came to um, uh, the Oakland Athletics and Billy Bean and the movie Moneyball. And of course, now it's moving into, you know, media and entertainment. Uh, what do you think is changing and what has changed in um, sort of what's your sort of uh, in? I guess, what's your idea on the impact of analytics uh, in these industries? Maybe Yuri, we'll start with you. Yeah, sure. So I think if you think about it, kind of, it's a mix of two, two things coming together, right? The first is obvious competition. So once one company or anybody else figures out a way to do things better, everybody kind of wants to follow suit. And the second being that over the last decade or two, we've really shifted a lot more to digital relationships and direct to consumer. So there's just a lot more information out there to do analytics on, right? So whether we're talking about social media data that we kind of comment on uh, out there or actual literal usage from, again, uh, someone like a Netflix, they have a lot of direct data on, on what people are watching, right? And we don't necessarily have to bridge the same gaps that we used to. I mean, we still do for, let's say, theater and box office. But even then, that's actually also gotten better in terms of social media hype before a movie could help you understand what opening day is going to look like. And because of that, you can make decisions on how much extra marketing you need to lift opening day, because that's a precursor for how the rest of the movie might do, right? So it's, it's a lot of that kind of coming together in the industry and a lot of basically dollar signs floating around, right? Saying like, okay, there's a lot of ways that we can maximize our output and learn more about our customers today because we have access to that data. So definitely like it's, it's a, the access to data, right? Maybe through technology or sort of just business principles. Is that kind of the uh, sort of how you see that starting there? Yeah, 100%. And I think that again, uh, a lot of the math and stats that we're 
they were available for decades, right? But the idea was we didn't have the kind of data sets we do today. And we didn't even really have the same one-to-one -one relationship that you may be able to have with the customer, right? And so it was, maybe you knew, I don't know, what, what their home address was and a few other things at best. And even then there was probably pass-through relationships through distributors and things. So you might not have known even that really. And today you can get down very granular to what they watch, how long they spend on any one program, uh, how long they cycle in and out of a particular subscription. So it's just there. So obviously you're gonna use it to try to get an edge. Right. And then Yuri, one more quick little aspect to that. So Yuri and I actually met, um, he puts on some seminars and some classes with regard to analytics. And I took an analytics class with him. Cause I'm, I'm not a math guy, right? I'm not good at math. And I don't know about that, Jeremy. I thought you you did, you did excellent. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, thank you. But, uh, but maybe talk a little bit about the sports aspect of that, because some of those things were so fascinating when it came to like ticket sales and how to find uh, how many tickets were available and what that meant for revenue. I mean, really had some really cool models that we went through there uh, that might be, uh, you know, very applicable to the, to the class. Yeah, I think, um, again, and it really, it's tricky because sports, especially major leagues, right? They have, uh, I don't want to say monopoly, but they certainly, it's a very finite resource, right? There's only so many NBA teams. There's only so many MLB teams. So for a while, again, there's a certain luxury in having that. But as more and more of this kind of younger generation um, has found other ways to entertain themselves, teams have had to basically reinvent themselves through a data, data wheel and basically say, okay, maybe I sell season tickets, but then I sell Sunday passes only to this type of customer because that's all they could do. Maybe I should look at um, a concession stands bundle. Maybe I should look at you know, a, a gift package at a certain time of the, the year or a phone call around there. All that sort of CRM stuff became a lot more powerful because again, if they're just competing amongst themselves and you have a local, very kind of engaged fan base, it's easy, easier. But as there are more options to entertain in different ways, especially with the digital age, teams themselves have gotten a lot more um, accepting of, well, most have gotten a lot more accepting of bringing in data in order to compete with other kind of entertainment options. And even within if you think about it from a team perspective, not all, but the major teams, you know, a lot of their revenue comes from TV sales, from gate receipts, from people attending the games and sponsorships. All three of those things, you could really maximize your potential value on if you do and crunch, crunch the stats well in order to kind of, again, what is my team worth compared to other team sales recently? There's a lot of stats you can crunch around that. You can kind of guess as well, but then you might be leaving money on the table. So they've definitely embraced that kind of new approach towards things. Now, thanks, Jerry. And then Brian, going to you, um, same question. I mean, what, what do you think has changed in the entertainment media sports space? Why all of a sudden the push for analytics where it seems like every company is doing this now? Well, you know, analytics is what we do. That's that's our, our core DNA at Nielsen and that's what we've always done. But the big change you know, it's really simple, the applications, if you really distill it down. Our data was used so that broadcasters and distributors of, of content could sell their ad time and advertisers could make sure they, they were getting what they paid for, 
full stop. Pretty simple, really, when you think about what it was was used for. But the big difference, and you know, not to get into all, all of the nuances, but the big difference is now it's also used to value pure content. The assets of whether it's you know friends or the office or whatever it might be, you, there, there's real value there in those assets. Now, you know, obviously, all the investments being made uh, in original content. But those deep libraries like Warner has, like all, all these companies have, um, there's tremendous, tremendous value there. And analytics are a way that, to really say, hey, this is how much this content is worth. And that's, that's the real, the, the simplest big change, I think, over the past 10 years or so um, from the standpoint of our analytics. Right. And then, of course, Brian, like what was it recently, uh, and correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I know... I mean, obviously Nielsen, like you said, has always been in the sort of the measuring game, you know, about um, how much a show is worth or how many people are watching it. But now as we've gotten to the streaming aspect, which sports is starting to get into, um, there was a change recently at Nielsen, right, where it went from it used to be just broadcast data, but now you guys are measuring the streaming. And then, of course, I've seen it done where it's like now it's measured in minutes, how many minutes were watched, right? Is that some of the stuff that you're involved in too, or that Nielsen's involved in as well? Yeah, that's actually where I spend most of my time now. And, and the reason, so there's, there's really two ways that we think about data. Average audience, that's the old rating. How many people were in the average minute of the program? That, that's, that's the rating. Or at reach, which is, you know, that's kind of more the way digital thinks of it. How many people were exposed to unduplicated to an ad or a program? The problem is when you're trying to compare programs that have and content that has wildly different durations and you know 350 episodes of uh, of a program versus one, the the way we're using minutes and minutes is just how many people were in the average minute of the program times the program duration. So it's kind of an equalizer when you're looking across acquired content, originals, things like that, as a way to say, what's making up the pie of what people are, are consuming on a streaming service? What's really having an impact on their consumers? Because, you know, these different, these different types of content are, are consumed differently because frankly, they have different real estate. If it's a, you know, one 90 minute movie versus, you know, something that has thousands and thousands of, uh, of minutes across hundreds of episodes. Well, that, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to equalize. And that's why we use minutes to kind of rank and compare. No, thanks, Brian. Um, so I'm going to stick with you on this next one too. How did you, uh, get your start into sort of entertainment, uh, media and sports and, what was sort of your pathway to, to Nielsen and, and, and what you're doing now? You know, I, I, th this is the worst story ever because I, I purely backed into it. I, I, I happened to, you know, be near Nielsen, went in and applied for an entry-level job. And, um, you know, the, the, the lesson to me is it was a business that was really expanding. There was a, a, a fascinating kind of ex a, a list of opportunities. I got in right as kind of the cable networks, the cable business was just starting, that exploded. Then we moved on, you know, kind of moved on from there to other businesses. Now, you know, I've been able to work on the streaming side. I worked on a project, a crazy guy from Australia called and said, I want to start a new broadcast network. And, you know, we hadn't started a new broadcast network in 30 years. And, but that was Fox. And that was a, an, an, an interesting expansion of the business. So I, I just got lucky. I, I fell into a, a really, really interesting business that, that continued to expand and uh, worked my way around. And that was, that's, and it just celebrated 35 years. 
No, well, congratulations. I was just telling folks that I got my 20 year high school reunion coming up, but oh, I told them a five, but now I just told them 20. So now they know what it really is. <laughs> but uh, no, that's awesome. Congratulations, Brian. Um, so Yuri, what about your path? You've got an interesting path as well. And you've, um, you know, you, you've had some interesting stops. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I wish mine was somehow different, but I also kind of fell into it. Uh, I think, I, I guess coming out of undergrad, I went to PwC, which is a big kind of accounting company. And I jumped around a lot of different clients. One of them was the Screen Actors Guild. And I got just kind of a taste more on the talent side of what contracts look like, kind of how the talent portion of the business works. And I thought it was interesting and kind of filed it away. And then I had an opportunity to move into more of a finance role for banking and kind of jumped around a few things in banking only to go back and get my MBA and do a, like a leadership development program through AT&T. And again, at this time, we had just, we had just started going through the acquisition of DirecTV and we had not actually even, I mean, Warner Media was not on the horizon yet. So I kind of bounced around different portions of uh, AT&T. I found the distribution portion very interesting as well. So I kind of moved into the, the VMVPD movement. If, for those of you guys are familiar, it's like the Hulu Live TV, the AT&T TVs. It, it's basically linear television over the internet. And um, I thought that was kind of cool, but I definitely got more interested in the kind of production side and content. And just happened to have a third rotation open up in a regional sports network up north uh, in Seattle and was like, you know what, I'll give this a shot. It's a little bit different, but um, it was definitely a space I was kind of interested in getting into and just kind of moved my way into, into that sort of role in entertainment. And then once, it, once you get in and the Warner Media deal got done, it made a lot more sense to kind of stay in that space. I found it interesting and there was a lot of opportunities. So then I kind of jumped around from uh, from various parts of sports into streaming and then into kind of uh, like macro strategy. So again, just kind of a happy little accident that all kind of worked out. And then uh, Yuri, I'm going to stick with you real quick because I know you have one specific aspect that I know about in your career with regard to like the regional sports networks. And obviously, so just to sort of, uh, I guess, you know, hone in on the, the sports aspect can you talk a little bit about your role there and what that meant and kind of how that model is changing a little bit? Yeah. So it's uh, for those of you who may not be as familiar, regional sports networks really take the local games that you see and basically distribute them over again, MVPDs and DMVPDs. And so it's basically a business that rents or leases rights for TV rights from the teams and the leagues, mostly from the team level for MLB, NBA, and NHL and then license it to the affiliates, the Comcast, the DirecTVs of the world. So it's an interesting space because as we know, kind of pay TV is declining. So there is a little bit of pressure on that business while we know that generally sports rights are going up. Uh, but it was an interesting space because there's still so much uh, interest and demand in sports that you still, it, it's just a balancing act between finding a way to monetize all of that and, um, and kind of a shrinking TV ecosystem. And as far as kind of trying to do the day-to-day -day or what I did there before, um, we, I kind of like started out in more of a marketing and uh, ops role, trying to build out a TVE product and things like that. And then kind of 
moved into a strategy role where we were trying to evaluate team negotiations. We were trying to evaluate affiliate negotiations and essentially bridge those two worlds in terms of trying to kind of get the product to where it needed to go. No, thanks, Yuri. Yeah, it's such a fascinating space and it's something that uh, it's changing, right? Because a lot of teams are moving to the streaming and uh, we've seen Amazon do this, right? Um, just seeing a lot more availability uh, for that going forward. So Brian, I'm going to come back to you. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned your career, both you and Yuri um, kind of had uh, some fortuitous when it came to uh, sort of finding your roles and the stuff, obviously hard work and all that went into it, but you both had similar paths. Maybe uh, what advice do you have for some of the young professionals on the call here, um, how to get into sort of entertainment media and sports? Like what are some tips you might have? Well, from my perspective, I think, you know, there's a, a lot of people that say, do something that, uh, you know, you, you, you really love and it's not like work. Well, I got news for you. Any, anything you do is work and you can tell because they pay you to go there, right? If, they, if you didn't, didn't pay you then, or you didn't, you didn't have to uh, think of it as work, they wouldn't pay you. But the key is whatever you're doing and whatever opportunity you get and it, whatever entry level or whatever it might be, just do everything you can to understand the business because that not only makes you more valuable and, you know, whatever components there are, but it also allows you to enjoy it more. You know, when, when I, when I first started and, and this data is, is, you know, kind of esoteric, but when you start to understand what, it, what the story that the data is telling you and, and to try and help your clients understand what's going on with it, then it suddenly really starts to matter and it starts to get a lot more exciting. So whatever, and the great thing about the entertainment business is, you know, it's it's one of the, the rare businesses that always seems to expand. So, you know, you, when you think about it, there's segments, as, as Yuri mentioned, you know, pay TV is under pressure. Cable, there was a time when, you know, cable was exploding, broadcast was under pressure, now local TV. But from a, the, the macro view, uh, the entertainment business just c continues to, to expand. And the reason is, Content creators are going to keep doing their art, right? Creating the content to go into the top of the funnel. And also from the sports perspective as well, the leagues are going to keep generating that. Engineers are going to keep creating new types uh, of ways to distribute it. You know, the idea of TVs that we have now, um, if you rewound, you know, 30 years, people would, you know, just be amazed. We take it for granted now. It's just because the products just keep getting better, faster, clearer, and with more options. And my point is, with content being created, the delivery being, being improved, and you know consumers are just going to continue to want more of it, then it's a great place to be. It's just find the area that's expanding and apply your skills and your strengths to that. So that, that's, you know, my, my macro advice is just keep looking for the areas that are ex expanding because you know the sports entertainment business is just going to continue to grow because there's so much demand and creation of it. No, great point, Brian. I love that. And I love your strategy, your strategy hat coming on there to, to figure out the best, the best place to, to find a new career. So um, Yuri, same question to you. Yeah. I, and I think it's true of, most any job you want to, or industry you want to get into, but entertainment is particularly kind of uh, unique in the sense that there's a lot to know. It's a specialized industry. I will say, I kind of, I, I think there's no one way to get in. 
And I will say generally though, some of the shared qualities that I would see from hiring somebody is basically something that lands along the lines of a passion for the industry, uh, a good knowledge of data in general and relationship building. And so what you basically need to do is to try to continue go out and learn about the industry so that when you do get an opportunity to talk about it with somebody who's in it, you, you sound like you already kind of belong in it. There's plenty of different kind of blogs and obviously uh, magazines and summaries that you can basically read on a, on a daily basis almost and follow the industry close enough so that when you have that kind of moment of fate where you kind of meet with people or you see an opportunity that pops up, you can kind of take a, uh, take a fair shot at it. And I think that's one thing that sometimes is a little challenging, especially breaking into the entertainment industry is people that come in and it sounds exciting and it's sexy and fun. And they're like, oh, movies are super exciting. I'm like, well, what do you think about, you know, the PVOD model and the fact that things are going direct to consumer at the same time as they're going to theater? And they're like, it, it sounds cool. And immediately there's a little bit of a, there's like other people that maybe, hey, here are my thoughts on it and I've kind of read up on it. So just make sure that that's like one of the filter steps that you don't miss out on. You basically follow, and if you really have a passion for it, it should really be evident. And then off, beyond that, just continue to build your relationships until you get to have the opportunity to have that conversation with someone in the industry and basically convince them that, that you belong. And it's, it's, a, it's a super fun industry. So obviously a lot of people want to be in it. And so um, kind of building that industry muscle in terms of the data uh, connected to the industry side of it, not just kind of the tabloid piece of it, really goes a long way in trying to get you kind of uh, into the door. Not good points, Yuri. And then Brian and Yuri, same question to you. Um, maybe Yuri, you can go first or Brian, however you guys want to do it. But and sort of to Brian's point about like looking for the best place for growth or where there might be a need in the industry, um, where do you see the biggest opportunity uh, with regard to special uh, professional sports teams and leagues with regard to job opportunities or growing areas there. I mean, I guess one I'll throw out there is NFTs. That's like the most popular thing, but um, I don't know if that's going to be a big thing in five years from now or not, but what do you both think with regard to that sort of question? Go ahead, Yuri. So um, I, I guess if I, I try to think of it as kind of view, where, where are viewers and where are fans heading? And if you try to isolate fandom into maybe three buckets, right? You have hardcore fans that are going to absorb any piece of content anywhere, uh, team related or, or maybe any sport related, right? And then you have casual fans that are kind of in it occasionally. Maybe they'll be pulled in more if they're in a fantasy team or something like that, but it, not so much, you know, on a, on a day-to-day basis. And then you have people that kind of absorb highlights and just kind of follow it more passively. A lot of the younger generation may follow, you know, NBA games through Snapchat and Instagram over, over a direct feed, right? So you kind of want to look at which parts of sports are growing in that space. And so to me, there's a lot of interesting opportunities that are still kind of being flushed out in betting. And so anything around sports betting as we've kind of moved forward to legalizing it. Uh, in various states, I think there's a lot of opportunities for teams to kind of lean into that. 
And along with that, there's also, there's more and more opportunities. And this works just as well for niche sports as it does for, uh, for the major leagues, right? Uh, it's around trying to find a job or, or trying to find just other ways of revenue around social, right? So whether that be clips or highlights or interactions and things like that. I think I caught one thing on ESPN Plus recently where it was basically a live Q&A with the player uh, and you can kind of post questions, not all that different than a clubhouse meeting or something like that. So I think there's some opportunities kind of on the horizon for both of those. Thanks, Sherry. How about you, Brian? I mean, from my perspective, I think from streaming was really something that unlocked a lot of opportunities with sports because it, it really expanded the one-to-one -one opportunity. It, it, before streaming, you know, people that had that connected whatever, you know, devices they could to try and get their home team and their away market. Well, streaming, you know, MLB.com was the first one, I think, that really put together a great application. And I think the we went in, Yuri talked about some of the, the really interesting new, new capabilities, but from a macro perspective, the ability to really get access to any team wherever you are, I think is is the big opportunity. And I, I still I still feel like we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly how that that happens. The technology is there. It's all in packaging and, and making sure the value proposition is there. But I think that's what it is, being able to, to always remain connected with your home team, no matter where you are. Not good points. And, you know, I'll add to that, Brian and Yuri, and I'll say that, you know, one of the things that I've seen recently, there was an article about Facebook and how uh, Facebook and Google had originally gotten into producing content, original content, and maybe even uh, streaming, you know, baseball games here and there on their platforms, uh, whether it be YouTube or Facebook Live. And they've really kind of moved away from that. And now they're trying to think about getting into maybe non-live sports content because live sports content tends to be too expensive. Uh, and they're looking at maybe documentaries, which has been really popular. Uh, and it sort of goes in line with a lot of professional athletes becoming producers and starting production companies. And uh, going that way. So the last dance is obviously the, the, the prime example, right? Um, so, and then of course you've got uh, Amazon purchasing uh, MGM for, you know, almost $9 billion. So it seems to be the wave. Um, but I guess changing gears a little bit, I want to kind of focus a little bit on both of your, uh, your guys's day to day. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit, Yuri, going with you, uh, what you're doing at your company, and then maybe tell us uh, a project that you've worked on um, that uh, has been you know, innovative or gratifying and why it was. Yeah, so I, I, I guess the day-to-day, because -day, it's a strategy group, we just basically have some work streams that are ongoing and you kind of have an idea of uh, several projects that may, you might be working on at the same time. So imagine kind of coordinating all of that, trying to figure out, um, you know, who you need to talk to within the company, what data you need to gather, what your stakeholders are, and to try to think about um, how you're going to kind of lead that project. And along with that, a good chunk of your time goes into ideally uh, following kind of all the research reports, trying to look at what's going on in the industry, and really trying to sense where things might be going you know, three, five, ten years down the line. So there's a lot of that on the day-to-day. -day. 
as far as kind of larger breakouts and, and results, one, I think I really, you know, I shared one in the chat and then another one I'm pretty proud of was uh, we were working on, you know, in, in the COVID age, obviously theaters became a challenge, right? And so we had to figure out what we're gonna do with the 2021 movie slate and um, various competitors were doing different things, but nobody had kind of had an established approach overall. Everybody was kind of just pushing things out for a few more months, a few more months, let's see uh, what happens. And so we had to decide, is there a way that we can take these movies day and date to both theaters for those people who felt safe to go to theaters and then at home as well. So I think that was a very challenging and interesting project because I still, even looking back on it at the time, because we're talking about, you know, late last year, it, it was a hard call, right? Like we were still kind of in, in, the, in the depths of COVID. So to try to figure out what to do with the movie industry and uh, what to do with theatrical and how to be fair to both the movie industry and to consumers and to the, our production folks was a very uh, challenging but interesting kind of project to work on. Well, that's great. No, thanks, Yuri. And then Brian, how about you? Same question, kind of what's your day-to-day um, and then uh, maybe something that you've worked on that was sort of innovative or really uh, excited you? Yeah, you know, I have a really fun job from the standpoint of analyzing data and I'm working really closely every day with uh, with clients pretty much all the big streamers now and and just looking at the data and and finding what the stories are and what the trends are and just sharing it back with them that's that's the biggest thing from the standpoint of um, strategy based on that you know I I kind of use three three uh, pillars to look at one is I listen. I try and listen really closely to our clients, um, to w- what's causing anxiety and what were they trying to figure out. So that helps figure out where, where where we need to go. I look at the data and I read. You know, I also read the trades. I, I think Yuri mentioned this as well. Keep reading. You know, try and keep up on what's happening and what what the big big terms and and issues are out there. What, whether it's pivot or other things like that, it's amazing theater right now. What's happening in front of our eyes with, across all of these companies that are all re- and and high anxiety. Make make no mistake, everybody's in the, in the midst of reinventing themselves and their companies, and everybody's trying to figure out what their roles are. And it's it's really fascinating to be a part of that and see it happening. You know, really unfolding in real time. From the standpoint of of project, you know, I, I've had I've had a lot of them over the years, but I think mo- most recently the one that's that's really had a big impact on on me and I and I hope our clients is just the literally the SVOD ratings because every client we've worked on since the beginning of Nielsen has worked really really closely with Nielsen to get their programs measured. And literally, they the way we do our business is everybody has. Uh, an encoder in their transmission stream, and in, every two seconds it embeds this audio signal that our meters read. So the the point is that's how we figure out who's what's being watched, and, but the and and clients have to do a lot of work to get there. Then along comes Netflix, right? And they not only didn't want to work with us, they intentionally didn't want it. You know, when, when we first started, they intentionally didn't want their programs measured by us. But the rest of the ecosystem said, 
we got to have this measured because we got to be able to value our content and we got to know what impact it's having on, uh, you know, what, what's happening in the viewer journey and what's happening. So we had to invent technology and a business kind of in spite of the fact that they didn't want to collaborate with us to measure those programs. So that, and, and I think we made a big impact on the people that were trying to figure out what was happening in the ecosystem. And I also think it's, it's, you know, fed into a lot of the strategies that, are, that have gone from there. Best part of the story is now all of the, the companies that, didn't want to work with us before, they're, they're starting to come around and say, well, oh, well, you know, we see that we know everything about this stream, but what we don't know necessarily is who's behind it and, you know, what, what all the characteristics are, things like that. So we're adding to the richness of the, the amazing depth of data that these companies have by using these products. So that's, it's been very gratifying because it's not only been filling a gap at that point, but also coming around and, you know, uh, de developing relationships with the, the companies that work weren't, were not working with us initially. No, well, that's fascinating. And then to, to your point, uh, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about this new product of Nielsen One? This is something I've been reading about. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I've been fascinated following some of that. Yeah, so Nielsen One is, is really a pretty simple concept. If you understand, if you think about what happens in TV now, it's you know, it, linear insertions of data, one, one commercial is inserted and everybody that views it sees it. Well, that's very different than kind of the digital concept of, you know, the ability to insert digitally and everybody can see a different ad. And the, the, the problem is a lot of things have to change from a TV measurement perspective to go from kind of a program measurement that everybody sees the same thing to down to the actual exact second commercial level measurement so that people can measure down to that level. And the reason that that's important is what you wanna be able to do is take that ad and be able to aggregate the ads across wherever it might be delivered, whether it's TV across different networks, across different uh, you know, cable networks, local stations, regional sports nets, up to um, digital insertions on the various ad, uh, you know, websites or, um, you know, uh, in, in ad supported video on demand, things like that. So it's the idea of moving from a program based measurement to commercial based measurement. So you can aggregate across all the platforms. Well, which, which makes sense, right? I think you started with it well, when you were saying like, it's just sort of a simple concept, but you're right. And it was something that doesn't exist currently. So, uh, yeah. All right. And I mean, it's been a very, and, a lot of the reason it doesn't exist is because the industry wanted to kind of maintain what they were doing and, you know, they weren't prepared. So usually what we've always done has been very reactive to say, okay, tell us what you want. And that's what we'll do. Well, there really isn't a consensus, you know, and, you know, it, we've, we've had to move forward with knowing what we believe the future is going to be. We have to pursue that as opposed to waiting until we get everybody saying, oh, okay, we're on board with that. But the good news is once we've kind of plotted the course, people are, are, are jumping on board. You know, I do have one question for you, Brian. I just thought of this and I'm, I'm kind of curious. So like when it comes to like award season, right, you're talking about awards for, you know, film and television. Um, how does Nielsen play into that? You know, and especially now where you've you know, it used to be like you mentioned with Netflix, they didn't want to know how many people were watching their programs. So how, how does Nielsen play into that? Well, I think they more didn't want anybody else to know. <laughs> they wanted to know that right. that was 
that was the difference. But you know, award, we, we really don't have, uh, we, we certainly measure all the programs and give the ratings for the awards, but um, I, I, you know, I, we're not involved in the voting or anything like that. So we'd be happy to be on, on board. We, we do have a couple of Emmys based on the technology that we have, but we don't, uh, we're not involved in the, the, the tallying of the votes or anything like that. But in the sense of like, do you think that the the voting sort of folks use your your data to to kind of measure programs? Do you think they're they're using that, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I th- I think the volume of of viewing and the popular you know that translates into popularity has a lot to do with um, you know what people will will suppose, and you know usually a a really long tail esoteric documentary doesn't isn't in best picture category, but maybe it's in one of the other categories. But I do think it helps you know when, when we put out the top tens and talk about volumes of of audiences. I think it does help fuel the buzz and also you know the social aspect of it as well, which probably plays in more to the you know the the voting for a lot of the award shows. But, uh, you know, award shows are a lot like sports, even though it's been down, uh, viewing has been down, you know, pretty much repeatedly. It is one of the few things, you know, from the entertainment side that does generate buzz like the sports, uh, like sports content does. So there is a a symmetry there. Right. No, that's, that's uh, fantastic. I appreciate that. Thanks, Brian. All right. So, uh, uh, Gary, let's go back to you. Let's talk a little bit about some stories from the trenches, right? So uh, how about, like maybe a funny antidote or lesson learned, maybe where you triumphed over adversity in your career. And then the same question to you, Brian. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's, there's quite a few. So I'm trying to find one that's probably uh, generally appropriate, but I, I think one of the funnier kind of lessons that I've had kind of early on in my career, and I'm still learning it to this day is this idea that, you know, if you want something done well and simple, it actually takes longer time, right? Like, so it's actually harder to make three slides that explain a story than 10. And so I think a lot of the work I did, especially like early days of sports and trying to analyze teams and trying to analyze um, just kind of overall market, I would, oh, I had every single Excel version of anything you might think of. And you just kind of dump that into a PowerPoint and say to an executive, here you go. Here's every version of a pricing that you could have for a sports team. And what you tend to learn is, first of all, people, people's eyes glaze over because again, stats are super fun for some people. And for most people, they just don't have time, right? To look, look into it. And two, Again, and I think uh, Brian had mentioned this before and over and over again, I think like one one thing I've kind of learned in the trenches is the idea of what's the general takeaway or story. It's really easy. I've generated a bunch of different data sets where I was like, okay, well, you know, here's what the hotspots are for a particular team. And we think the fandom is there and we think, you know, subscribers are there. But then the next follow-up question would be, okay, but what do we do with that data? We've identified, you know, a target market. We think a particular new network might, you know, might might generate this much interest. How do you tra- translate that to dollars and cents? What does that mean in trying to figure out how it integrates into the rest of the business? And a lot of that stuff is just so um, is so important to kind of keep track of. I think uh, I had kind of another situation where I'd gone in with uh, a larger team and was kind of 
showing the entire uh, basically pay ecosystem and the virtual ecosystem to their to their board was like, oh man, there's so much potential here and here and here. And then what it, what it kind of broke down to is like one of the people in the room was like, yeah, but what do we care about? What should we care about? Here's 15 different opportunities of ways to monetize, but which one do you think is good? And so just kind of that's, that's the kind of stuff I think over time as you spend more time in the industry, you understand that you have to shape everything like a story and basically go from having that like accidental oops face in front of an executive because you brought in too much data to really being able to put it all on a slide, which again, really takes a lot of time to do well. No, thanks, Sherry. It's a good yep. story. And then Brian, same to you, same question to you. A story from the, you know, stories from the trenches, something that maybe you were, you triumphed over adversity, even something funny, um, but uh, we'd love to hear from you. Well, you know, one thing I would say is, um, you know, have confidence in yourself. And I, I think, and, and if, if you've done your homework and you're prepared, um, you know, always be be trying to work through that. I, I remember the first chance I got to, to really go out and, and, and pitch something to a, a client on my own. I was flying solo. My first, my first shot, um, it, it was a, it was a big ad agency in New York and I, and I was the, the only Nielsen person there and I was in a, a big conference room and I was, and I started talking and they attacked me like I was a cheeseburger on the beach and they were a flock of seagulls. It was unbelievable. And, and I remember I was in there and I, and I started sweating really, really bad. And, and they went on for, you know, a couple of minutes. And I was like, this is, this is the end of my career on there. And suddenly they all burst out laughing and they said, they, they were good friends with my boss. And he said, this is a setup, you know? So after that, I realized, well, it probably won't get much worse than that, you know? So that, that's the kind of thing, just always, you know, have confidence in yourself and, and, and work through that. I think that's a, a, a really important uh, thing to know because you, 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 if you're really paying attention and you're working on things, you know more than you think. And, and that's one of the, you know, as I've worked through this data, and I went, I've gone and, and worked with different companies. I always kind of go in presuming, wow, they, they know so much about everything. And, and you realize, well, if, if you're really doing your job and you're paying attention and, and you're doing what you need to do, you, you have something to bring to the table. So, you know, like Yuri said, you got to have a take too. always be ready to give your opinion, assuming it's, you know, reasonably informed because the, people don't pay you to sit there and listen and take notes. They really want to hear what you have to say. So be confident and, uh, and, and, and jump in when you have a chance, because, you know, people will, really find that particularly for your bosses and i'm not saying you know be a loud mouth jerk or anything like that but have a take that's what people are going to be depending on you for and that's that i think that's a way you can really bring value oh thanks brian good advice um so yuri and brian qu question to you uh there's i guess the two of the bigger things that's going on in entertainment and sports is on the entertainment side is this idea that you know, will movies go back to the to the theaters? Will we see sort of pre-pandemic movie theater attending? Uh, and then on the other side is, are we going to see anything with regard to, um, are all sports going to be streamed or is there still going to be cable networks? You know, so to those, maybe to those two questions, I know those are difficult questions, but Yuri, maybe start with you and then Brian with you. What, what do you think about those two propositions? I Let's start with theaters because I feel like that's easier for now. 
Um, I think what we've seen, again, when we entered COVID, everybody kind of had a different approach, whether they pushed movies back, if they had an SVOD, they may have considered directly pushing it to the SVOD and or day and dating it on both uh, theatrical and SVOD. And I think long-term, uh, I really do think that theaters have a place. So I, I think that what's gonna happen and what we're already seeing with the deals kind of signed and publicly announced was a shorter amount of windows. So imagine if before average windows were like 90 days before you got to see it anywhere but a theater, um, that's probably gonna be more like 45 days. I think certain, certain maybe smaller tent poles under hundred million, you're probably gonna see some S-bots like a Disney might take a film like Luca or something else or a, a Pixar film and take it directly to Disney plus just to generate kind of subscribers. So you're gonna see kind of that sort of back and forth and there's gonna be a lot more flow between um, basically theatrical debut and then a quick debut at home for a higher, for, for, a, for a premium price. So I, I do think that theatricals are gonna stick around. They're just gonna, movies are just gonna stay less time in the theaters. The good news though, or kind of the, the asset test to theatrical revenues would be a majority of the films uh, of a film's revenue, especially big blockbusters, really comes in, in the first three weeks, right? So I think in that sense, having the long tail effect is great. And I'm sure theatricals would love the window to be, you know, 120 days, but there's probably a balancing act that everyone's gonna kind of agree to going forward. As far as sports in a digital setting, um, that gets a little bit trickier, right? Because we have to kind of basically zoom in on leagues. We have to zoom in on agreements with affiliates uh, that, that basically these, um, whether it's the national channels or regional sports local channels have the relationships they have with Comcast and DirecTV and some of the other affiliates and see kind of what their limitations are. So the problem with digital sports today is if I take a, a sports game and I put it on Prime, and I put it on my local channel, and I put it on ESPN, what is the value of that game to any, any of the people that are, are being serviced by all three of those? It's definitely lower, right? So again, Comcast would be upset if all of a sudden a game is non-exclusive. And then upset again if it's non-exclusive and it's actually not behind a paywall, it's available for free on Facebook, for example, right? So we, there's more of a balancing act between having sports digitally available and still monetizing at a way that you know pays the teams what they're used to from tv rights frankly and so some things that we've seen and these are more like ancillary examples but it's it's like something like the wwe network right folding into peacock so there are some opportunities where what's already provided digitally will kind of scale up and provide for kind of a a bigger pool of subscribers to subsidize over similar to cable. And then we've seen some of the new, like the NHL deal, for example, with Disney, right? Some games going exclusively to ESPN plus and Hulu. I think that's probably the road we're gonna see is there is gonna be a bridge for sports slowly leaking into digital. And I don't necessarily think um, it's gonna happen overnight because there's just so many dollars still left in the traditional ecosystem. And it's one of the last few things that you really it's really appointment-based viewing. Very few people DVR a game and come back like a week later, right? Everything 
everything is all about seeing it live. So I, th I think that that's a little bit of a markier bridge. Do I think there's a day where sports will obviously be all be available digital? Yes, but what that timeline looks like, it, I think is still in the works. Oh, thanks, Yuri. And then Brian, same, same two questions to you. Well, I'm going to start off with the sports one because I think it's really important to think in terms of what's happening with cable networks and sports. You know, I, I think about there, there's a little different thing. And this, again, this is partially opinion, but we, we did see in general sports ratings go down, unexpected, I think, unexpectedly coming out of COVID. But I think a big part of that, and, and again, this is kind of uh, somewhat opinion, but I think part of it was without any any crowds in the stands, you know, crowds generate that electricity, uh, on, even it's translated on screen. So I think I think we're going to have a bit of a renaissance as we go into the you know in, into the full stadiums again with people with television sports. So that's the first point. The second point is, I really think w what's happening. Um, you know, with these traditional cable networks kind of sacrificing themselves, if you will, uh, for the, the streaming entities is probably going to happen on the sports side as well. I, I think the best example now, if you if you look at Discovery Channel now, position A of pretty much every ad break is an ad for Discovery Plus. So, the, you know, the cable channel is saying they're taking their their most valuable inventory and trying to push people over to, to the streaming entity. So with more and more companies doing that, I think we're going to see the migration. I, I agree with uh, Yuri. This is not going to happen overnight because there's a lot of people that, you, you know, people do still miss the fact that, you know, 75% of television consumption is still linear. You know, a, a lot of people forget that. And that's, that's where the, the big audiences still are. But I think we're going to see a really steady migration. And the other advantage of moving to, you know, streaming is suddenly you get full addressability. You know, it's all of the kind of technical re restrictions that are happening uh, with linear television. You know, you can jump ahead of that. So I think it's it's inevitable that it's going to going to go there, but it just won't move as quickly as I think as, as some people uh, might imagine. Great, great on the sports one. Um, I think really good analysis there. And then how about the, the entertainment side with regard to theaters and distribution and theatric windows? Do you think we're going to go back to pre-pandemic levels or do you think there's going to be some sort of mix or bridge? Or yeah, it, It's really funny and working and, and obviously Yuri's had a front row seat to this more than I have, but I've been working with a lot of the studios um, and, and measuring what's happening with these, with the PVOD uh, pro, uh, movies that go out and, you know, understanding exactly um, what the audiences are and things of that nature. I, I think there's, there's two things that have a big impact. One, I think as, as this has been a great experiment, right? a great lab for all the studios to test this out because clearly the, the kind of first do no harm to our relationship with the movie uh, studio, uh, the, the movie theaters was, was in effect. They wanted to figure out what they could do, but they also didn't want to blow up the, you know, that, that huge revenue stream. So there's a lot of testing went on as a result of that consumers have now been exposed to it. They've, you know, the idea of turning it on and seeing a 1999 price on a movie is is pretty common now you know if you rewind not that long ago people would have fainted 1999 are you crazy so you know that in conjunction with the fact of how good the the sound systems and um, the TVs are now at home. I think that's a you know it, it's starting to get to be a pretty compelling value proposition. 
But I think our desire to get the hell out of the house, right, and go do something is, is having an impact here. And I think theaters are much different. Movie theaters are much different than they were just a few years ago in that I think they're really trying to make, first off, you know, nothing beats an IMAX screen for a really big event and the ability to have good food and, you know, cocktails and everything at the movie theater, I think is, is also a compelling proposition. So I think it's, I I think we're going in both directions and both, I think are going to, going to continue to succeed actually. Thanks, Brian. Um, and then, so last question, Yuri and Brian, uh, is this, what do you guys think as sort of the future for entertainment, media, and sports? What are some sort of trends that you're seeing? Um, maybe we'll just, we'll close with that. And let's, Yuri, let's start with you. Okay, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and I'll give Nielsen a shout out on, on a great product they have, for example. Um, one difficulty with trying to sponsor, let's say a, a team or something else is, let's say you put a logo somewhere in the stadium and you have to figure out what the overall brand value of something like that is. Well, Nielsen built a, a great product that basically tracks the amount of time a particular logo is in the stadium, right? In the shot basically that you're seeing. So something like that is a lot easier to kind of measure than what we had before, which was, and we think there's this many fans. I'm guessing, you know, X amount of them will buy our car insurance or whatever else. Yeah. Let's pay this and see if, if, and even then, how do we measure, you know, what, 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 how many people saw the ad, et cetera. And so I think that's a good microcosm where I think part of the future of entertainment is going is again, if everything is going to be a lot more personalized and a lot more digital, then we're gonna have a lot more data to work with. And uh, in a way, I also think that, so that's one piece is I think we're gonna have a lot more insights at a granular level about the consumer, about a fan, about a particular experience you found noteworthy five years ago that we can recall to cross, cross sell you on something. And then from an actual like kind of products and, and the, uh, the future of entertainment in terms of content, you kind of mentioned some of them during, but like NFTs, more kind of personalized, specialized IP usage. Somebody in the chat mentioned uh, the idea that you could watch an NBA game and have, you know, Marvel kind of AR overlays on that or Nick running NFL games with uh, kind of slime time and all of that. There's probably going to be a lot of that as well in the future in terms of, yeah, especially once you go fully digital, you should have more addressable ads you should have a more personalized experience of how you watch a game and how things are overlaid. And even as we kind of go into kind of the Gen Z habits, a lot more of what they do, I mean, they prefer watching tele, uh, they prefer playing video games to watching television, for example. And it doesn't seem like that's fully gonna be something that they're gonna age out of. So we're probably gonna see a lot more experiential and, and kind of gaming integrated into entertainment viewership and sports and everything else. So I think that's probably a good, a good start is trying to have kind of a, a, a view 10 years from now where everything you have is a lot more personalized uh, teams and companies and, um, and IP creators will know more about you, but it also should be a more fragmented space where you have a lot of people kind of uh, 
that essentially kind of become famous or have a brand built off of just YouTube or just Instagram and potentially jumping back and forth between kind of traditional studios and traditional development and these kind of rising stars from an influencer perspective. That's fantastic. Uh, thanks, Yuri. All right, Brian, you get the last word. Same question. Foreshadowed this in an earlier answer, but I, th I think the good news is this is an unbelievably great business, you know, and it's just it's just going to continue to expand in certain areas. So it, the, the key is focusing in on the on the right things is which is kind of the challenge. But from from my perspective, what I've learned, you know, on all the changes we've seen and even getting into personalization, everything else, the same three questions are asked. How many, how often, how long? How many people visited? How often did they come or whatever the activity is? And how long did they stay for? And those three questions, if you if you can answer them about whatever your whatever the media is, whether it's PVOD, whether, you know, it's sport, whatever, that's the key. Those are the key things that we're always trying to answer. And, and I think that they'll, they'll continue to hold. So the, the future of media clearly, um, you know, the, the biggest change I think in my 35 years has been uh, on how people think about content and entertainment differently. It really started out with VOD and when, you know, cable VOD started and you, you didn't, you, you know, everybody said, oh, and I remember the, the you know, v, the VCRs when they came in. It was like, this is the end of television. We'll never, you know, and then D, DVRs came in. This is the end of television. We'll never, and, you know, and then VOD came in. This is the, everything is the end of television. Guess what? Television is still pretty popular, but it's very different. But I will say when Netflix came in and really got people thinking about menu, making your selections of what to watch, that's what really changed everything. And a lot of people are, you know, are, are still following that and, 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 and continuing to, to uh, expand on that. That's what I think the big changes from, a, from the media perspective, the entertainment perspective, we're just going to see expansions of that. But I do think the one thing that, is, uh, that I mentioned earlier that is going to be amplified is the value of content. Figuring out content as opposed to just, uh, you know, a, a vehicle to deliver ads is, is going to be a really big part of our business uh, moving forward. So, but good luck to all of you in your careers. And it uh, sounds like you're off to a great start. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Yuri. So everybody, this is Yuri Adamov, uh, Manager of Strategy and Sales and Distribution at Warner Media, and Brian Fuhrer, who is the Senior Vice President for Product Strategy and Thought Leadership at Nielsen Global Media. So thank you both for being here. All right, folks. So that was Brian and Yuri uh, with uh, Warner Media and Nielsen uh, Global Media. So uh, so happy to have them with us uh, on this week's episode. Look forward to being back with you next week. Um, and uh, thank you again for, uh, for always listening in and hope that you uh, have a great week ahead. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.